You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Dana Dennis-Smith, entrepreneur, ex-lawyer and journalist, She founded Obelisk Support to keep city lawyers, especially mothers, working flexibly around their personal commitments and to provide clients with quality legal support solutions onshore. Named by the Times as one of the UK's top 50 employers for women, Dana was recognised as the outstanding innovator by Legal Week for getting alternative ways of working accepted and she's provided a voice of reason in a hotly debated area. So welcome, Dana, Voices of Reason and What We Like on this podcast. How are you? I'm delighted to be with you. Two questions this week. The first one, I've always found that offering flexible and remote working was a good way to attract talent. But now I employ 30 people with more than half of them working remotely and we're becoming chaotic and disjointed, especially in our communication. Are there any tools or management processes that can help us function and communicate more effectively? Secondly, and perhaps a a flip side of the first question, as a cost-saving exercise, the relatively young company I work in has given up its central office and now we all work from home most of the week. I feel incredibly lonely and miss the company of my colleagues. It's a terrible thing to say, but I like to get out of my house and away from my family in my working time, but now I feel trapped at home. Is a new job my only option, or is there a way to help the company I work for make this work better so that I can start enjoying my job again and feel valued? So Dana, you manage hundreds of remote workers, so I can't wait to get your view on this. But first, can we start by hearing a little bit about you and your journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I I started really um, as an accidental entrepreneur. I never thought I would be one. Um, I started in journalism. I loved my freedom of roaming the land and finding stories to write about. And then I decided to uh, get a little bit more specialized by becoming a lawyer. And once I joined this very, very large global law firm, I realized how much I missed my freedom and also realized that I was quite unruly by their standards. Um, And uh, in a way, my entrepreneurial genie came out at at that point. I realized I had a lot of questions, a lot of ideas that I just wanted to make something of. And this is how I left and I set up a very small consulting firm in the political um, risk space. And I thought I'd mix, you know, it would allow me to mix journalism, law, and being a small-scale entrepreneur and, and try it out. And uh, that's how I kind of set up my first business. That's really interesting because I think my first business was from that approach, what am I good at and what skills have I got and what can I do and can I turn those into a business? <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice way to start. It's what is it's called the kind of the technical entrepreneur. You know, you, know, you kind of you have the skill and you build around it. But once I got that business off the ground, I realized I was trapped in my own skill because I could only grow as much as I could grow the output of my own work. And uh, I didn't enjoy it because I wanted to manage a business and I didn't want to actually do the work and the product itself. Um, so, But it was a really great education and I, I did that for three years. 
looking for the bigger, more scalable um, business I wanted to set up. Um, and this is how I came around to uh, founded this uh, outsourcing business, Obelisk, because I was traveling um, in India and at the time everybody was outsourcing offshore and I got wind of the fact that somehow all these law firms were open to outsourcing to these destinations. And I thought, well, you know, somehow I had this kind of playback moment where I thought, of all the women that I'd seen give up um, their jobs when I had families and all the kind of male friends I saw advancing in their careers. And I just thought, well, if they're so open to sending it God knows where, why wouldn't they be open to sending it to the people they've trained themselves? And how can I create a really strong service line that, if you like, is a gatekeeper to the lawyer's time but also creates a very smooth delivery to the clients. So there's no reason for them to say, I can't use this kind of service because they won't know how the operational model works anyway. And it was sufficiently, you know, it was sufficiently well run for them to trust us. So that's kind of when, um, when I very quickly <laughs> set up the second business and I thought this is, the, this, this is the one I want to run. But I had one, one rule from the beginning because I trained as a lawyer and the temptation of being an expert entrepreneur, <laughs> uh, you know, is always <laughs> it's always there. And I basically promised to myself I will never do the work. So whatever type of legal work landed, I will not touch it. So I had to find somebody that could do the work, because otherwise I would end up in the same vicious circle of only being able to do what I could do myself. And it wasn't scalable. And you made the deliberate choice that you were the entrepreneur, the CEO, you were the conductor of the orchestra. And to do that role well, you could only do it well if you weren't also trying to play an instrument. Uh, totally. This is what was, you know, that was the lesson I took from my first business. That business was self-funded. Um, so there was no kind of, um, you know, preset scale that came with, let's say, a seed round. You know, it was literally me with my first project and then basically being trapped by it. And then I, I very quickly realized that was a model that although it gave me financial security, it was in fact just um, a very limited operation. What I was interested um, to learn as an entrepreneur was how to scale. How can you be bigger than yourself? Um, and the only way I could figure out, obviously, I didn't maybe read enough management books and, you know, because as I said, I, I, I couldn't say entrepreneur for a long time. If somebody said, what? <laughs> so if somebody said to me, what are you? You know, I would pause and say, oh, my goodness, what am I? <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, even now, I, or I couldn't, I, even now I can't say I'm a serial entrepreneur. I just want to be a solid person that runs a fast-growing business really well. So that's kind of the spirit with which I started the business. I wanted to be learning to be a solid business person that shows value, but also does good. So I had a very clear kind of a sense of integrity around the operation I wanted to set up and to really learn what I didn't like and reflect on my first experience as an accidental entrepreneur. And that's kind of, you know, these are the lessons I collected and I tried to apply. And what does that business look like now? I mean, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how many people you're working with, because you, you talk about this as something deliberately planned in. You, need, you understood that you needed to bring people in because you couldn't do the work yourself. And I know from when we were talking earlier, it's not something that you've raised lots of investment for. You've, you've found a business model and you've grown it very systematically. 
And perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about how that business works on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so uh, basically we have nearly 1,500 lawyers that we pre-vet and onboard. It's only in the B2B sector, so it's very much commercial legal work or transactional business-to-business legal work. It's very focused, and again, I think that was linked to my, you know, being quite deliberate in finding revenue streams very early on because I wasn't, I didn't have any runway. So basically, it was very much lawyers that were trained and had experience in very large uh, law, law firms that wanted to work um, in a different way, more flexibly from home, which basically created a very, very distinct category of mainly women that wanted to fit work around their family on the one side of the marketplace. And on the other side was the large corporates where there's an increasing volume of work, um, there's fluctuation in that volume, and having a constant over, overhead uh, cost in relation to having a stable legal team is not sustainable. So I felt I could moderate the peaks, um, if you like, uh, by suggesting this kind of more flexible way of working. So I think right now we have over a million hours of capacity on our platform. Wow, a million hours of capacity. So the person employing 30 people who's asking the first question You've obviously found ways to make sure that that is coordinated, that people are working on the right thing, that that people are reporting in and delivering to your clients. Were those processes something that you had in place and were getting right from day one? Or have they evolved over time through your learning so that you've understood how to kind of calm the chaos if there ever was any? I mean, obviously, I didn't start with all these people straight away, and you learn along the way. So I started with four people, um, and probably between them, they had something like 40 hours of capacity at the time in 2010. And I remember having this very clear challenge in one of my first meetings with one of the large corporates, and they basically said, well, in full-time equivalent, you have about 20 people. And on my spreadsheets, I had about 200. You know, I suddenly realized that there's some work to be done around, you know, cataloging everybody's skills and really understanding in very, you know, a lot of detail what it is that they can bring to the table to be able to counter that kind of pushback. So I basically had two pushbacks. One was around why would the mother ever prioritize the work if they have to focus on the children? Uh, and then the other one was you'll never have enough people uh, based on how much work I have. So I had, you know, I had to address those, you know, kind of challenges from meetings head on. But I didn't build technology at the start. I did it very manual to learn what made sense to automate and what didn't make sense to automate, what was valued by the client in terms of interaction and what wasn't. And so I started with spreadsheets and then basically in 2015, so that's nearly for five years after founding the business, I started building a technology um, element to the business. So we had a team and we've created our own matching engine because we realized speed of turnaround was critical, but we also didn't want to lose that special touch that we had started to be known for. So really kind of trying to use the technology but not lose the brand uh, positioning. So it's quite a difficult balance to achieve. But I didn't launch straight into trying to be too operational because at the end of the line, you're still dealing with people and people's lives are quite complex and they're very individual. Everybody has a different story. And there's only so much unique 
you know, unifying of it that you can make without actually pushing them away. So I wanted to know what are the commonalities of this population and what is the individuality and bring the automation around to the common parts. But I needed to learn what they may be without being told by, you know, maybe some research that was carried out by other people. I wanted to try and, and capture it myself. It's one of the key things, I think, when you're managing either a remote team or a part remote team to understand not everybody is always on and just because they're off doesn't mean that they are not supremely dedicated. How did you go about understanding people's capacity and availability and actually the deploying of right tasks at the right time? We did a lot of face-to-face meetings, if you like, and get-togethers to just have a sense of what the you know what made these people tick purely on a kind of person to person level but also the point of the technology is that that's where we realized it is um very helpful and empowering so it was very difficult but it was a different scale so when we were 100 people you know you use also communication tools to reach them but it was very difficult you know so people we would have this kind of um weekly call out on capacity availability that would be merged for spreadsheets and it was quite time consuming, but we've learned what people do and what they don't do and how difficult it is to get them to report. Even when, you, as you said quite rightly, they want to work, but sometimes they don't understand they've got to proactively say it. So, you know, just being at home waiting by the telephone without being engaged would probably make the work go to the one that's engaged. So educating people, they have to be more entrepreneurial themselves. You know, we're going out to find all these opportunities and take it to their home, but we need one thing we need to know when they can do it um, and then it's a, it's a very small ask in the scheme of how much running around we do for them but it wasn't you know it was something that we kept we kept learning from and we kept trying different things if i'm honest and when we built the technology the first thing we did was to get more visibility of the various type if you like a, a better library of skills we need to really understand them in more depth but then we took uh, the technology to them. So we basically created a profile app, we call it, um, that invites them to, su- to submit their availability into our system. Uh, so in a way, if we, start, we started to build the platform and the kind of marketplace, but from the inside out, rather than just kind of applying it um, as a you know, three-sided thing from the very beginning, hoping people will sign up and stay because I had realized through my interaction with them, it isn't a problem to have people sign up. The problem is to keep them. And so there was no point just creating a really, you know, swanky new platform where I had a thousand lawyers signed up, but nobody was logging in a second time. And you see this kind of uh, interesting (laughs) interaction, especially in the kind of app space where, you know, people say, I've got 200 million users around the world, but 20,000 log in every week. So I didn't want to have the kind of, you know, the big number vanity. I wanted to have the reliable data that allowed me to act in a, you know, with the integrity uh, I wanted to put out as a business and with the reliability we needed to deliver to the clients because otherwise it loses the credibility of the model. So the whole point was the client doesn't need to worry because we are there to moderate that uncertainty around when people work. But we need to have clarity about how how we line people up. It's a really interesting point because you know, I recognize what the person asking the first question is saying. Maybe you, you, know, you start your 
startup, you have two or three of you, you may all be working together, or even from the beginning, you may be working in different locations. You, you find ways to make it work. And then there's more of you. And unexpected challenges come in. I've seen the challenges of that handled badly. For example, I lived through, as did some of my team, you know, a horrible experiment to try to better understand how all of the remote and present workers were by literally tracking everybody's time to the minute, which was the most soul-destroying experience of, of all of our lives. I think we started to gamify it so that we were literally setting the clock up when we were going to Greg's to buy a sausage roll or to the toilet or all this kind of thing, because we felt so resentful as grown-ups that every moment of our time was being tracked because we couldn't be trusted. But at the same time, I know from the other perspective as CEO, when you're trying to coordinate something time sensitive to happen, you need to know that there will be people there to do it. And I like what you're saying about, you know, you need people to proactively log and state their availability. And I, I suspect that the, for the person in the first who's asking the first question about this communication and this focus do all of their team, both the people that are physically present and the people working remotely, understand all of each other's availability to work and their terms of work? Um, but if you don't invest as much time in communicating that through to everybody else, even when you're small, that becomes a problem. It must be extremely difficult if you haven't nailed that and then you try to scale. Is that something you see at all? Well, I mean, when I started, you know, the central team that manages the lawyers and, you know, the recruitment and everything, um, you know, was inexistent. But I think for me, the question has two elements. One is what what do you as a, a CEO, how do you understand these new ways of working? How do you understand your management style in that context? And every employment relationship has to start from the very core of what you know the base of any employment contract is trust now if you don't trust an employee that's a new employee then i'm not sure what you're doing in your business anyway because you should have that trust it's it's part of the contract but also i think for me i set about building a team around the various patterns and i recognize it isn't easy because it's much easier to demand everybody's there at set hours and you turn up and they're convenient. It's very convenient to have everybody in one place. But it isn't playing to people's strengths. Especially if that suits your management style. Especially yeah. if your management style is walk the floor, then really you're bringing everybody to you because that lends itself to your style. Whereas what you need to be doing is developing yourself as a manager to fully utilize a much, much wider pool of talent that doesn't necessarily think work like you or indeed have the capacity to come to you at your convenience but also i think if that's your style and you don't recognize it, then you are responsible for instilling the lack of trust of the others in the patterns you've agreed with other members of staff so what happens is that if you say okay fine i'm okay with your flexible hours or whatever but in reality you do have a sense of ah, oh, it's so inconvenient because it would be so much easier if everybody switched on and off at the same time then it comes through because you do have to lead by example whereas i was from the very beginning and maybe because also you know at the very start of the business and so maybe i should have said earlier i incorporated this business and i was very excited about the scale and everything but I realized I was pregnant. I, I didn't have children when I came up with this idea. Uh, it wasn't a part of a personal need. It came later. So I basically was faced with a new business 
trying to create a solution for a lot of people that I was coming across saying, I can't believe I can't work just because I have a child. And before I knew it, I joined them. I was part of the same army trying to make work work for me with a newborn, well, obviously nine months later. Um, So I had to juggle and I was comfortable and I trusted myself that I could. So when I was reflecting on my management style, my position was I want to enable these people to succeed. I don't want to just see them as a half measure. But maybe my experience of having to focus on and you know to continue to believe that I should run a business with a newborn in my arms and that somehow these crazy pushbacks won't affect me and I will still succeed maybe inform me that actually other people are struggling with the same choice and the same pressure. And if I said to them, I believe, they will know that I really meant it and they will do their best. So maybe it was my personal experience that maybe maybe made me very open to allowing people to find ways to work and to trust them from the beginning and measure them around their strengths rather than always, you know, look at the, the weaknesses they might have. So that that could be it. But uh, I think leaders have to think about whether they generally want flexibility. And if they are getting wound up by it, they should be honest and then build a business in their image if that's what they want or challenge themselves. And that's really interesting because it's flex. You know, do you want flexibility? Are you looking at productivity versus hours? Are you looking at output versus presenteeism. If you are committed to uh, to flexibility, it's because generally you see the economic value of that underutilized talent, or it's bringing you a talent pool that you couldn't access otherwise. Certainly that was the case for me. I was able to tap into dispersed expertise that I, I could never have got on the doorstep. And it worked extremely well, and it was productive talent. But the person in the second question, it seemed like they've been sent home to work, not because that business has got any commitment to flexibility, not because that business has really thought in any way, shape or form about how to utilise a dispersed workforce. They've gone, we can't afford to keep this office open so you can all work from home. I mean, I, I was spent a period of time when I was contracted into to Hewlett-Packard many years ago. And we all had to work from home for cost purposes. And it was just the most miserable, lonely experience. But that is, that's not about flexible working, as I understand it. That's about cost cutting minus any form of management support. Do you think as a worker in that environment, the, the person that's asking that question saying, you know, I feel kind of really isolated and lonely here. Do you think there's anything that they can do to, to try to manage up and try to inspire that company to change its ways slightly? Or or do you think it's a bit of a lost cause? Uh, for sure, it's not a, lo- a lost cause. To be honest, I think the whole idea of the workplace, whether it has flexibility or any setup or any combination of it, at the end of the day, people go to work because they do it for money, but also for self-respect and pride and you've got to understand what is making people want to work in your business is what is what is it that they're signing up to i mean i have people that work in all sorts of combinations in in the business beyond you know so obviously the business has a central team you know our headquarters are in farringdon in london and then there's dispersed lawyers all over the world really so 
on the immediate team that also work flexibly. I have somebody who works uh, from home, only comes in once a week, and I have a, a, a whole spectrum of variations between that and, you know, nobody's really only doing full-time in the office um, in the business. So the question is, how do you bring them in? and How do you, for example, make them feel connected? So we have retreats as a team. When I uh, look at the vision and the mission of the company, what is it that we're trying to achieve? What do we take pride in? I involve them. So we are trying to make this business succeed. And ultimately, the shareholder and the owner, you know, you've got to have the talent of deferred gratification if you set up a business. So I'm running this business to give them jobs that they enjoy, that we're behind a, a company that's growing as exciting and challenging the norm. But that's, they're succeeding before me as the owner because I might be reaping the rewards if I ever exit in 10, 15 years' time. So right now, it's about managing that present to work for everybody in the team as well. So to give them the salary, but to also give them the joy, but also the flexibility so they can set some rules, but also we join in together and we do it every week and we huddle and we have, uh, you know, luckily the communications tools around are many. And so we touch base with every single member of the team numerous times a day. So they call in, we have catch-ups and they don't feel they're working by themselves, but they also they treasure the quiet time where they can get their work done. But I think it's about really allowing them to set not to force them into isolation full time because it suits you to cost save. That's the worst of reasons. Mm-hmm. To allow them to you know to choose the isolation that suits their performance and makes them feel they are the most value. But again, we go back to the same word. You know, do you trust them or do you not? I never check in to see whether they're online or not, and you know whether they've switched on their computer at nine o'clock. I, I just assume some people are later workers, some people are earlier workers, you know. People come in and, and work when they feel most creative, and that's a good thing. Is there anything that you need to be aware of, distributed workers, that differ from those that are physically present, or things that you might forget that apply to your remote team just as much as they do to the people you can see? Well, I would say as a general rule, you need to... As you said, quite rightly, you need to look at them as still part of your team with the same obligations to them as you would have if they're all around the same table. Um, So very much the same rules apply to them too, um, whether they work from home or in the office. I mean, I can't think of anything specific and also probably it would be uh, almost unsafe for me to do it. (laughs) Answered like a good lawyer. Answered like a good lawyer. Having having not actually touched any legal work for a long time. But um, to be honest, I think it's about, you know, having a clear contract. Sometimes startups don't even start with the right contract or with no contract. Making sure that the contract reflects the relationship, that the hours or whatever the arrangement you've agreed is stated, it's clear. You still have to do the performance reviews and the meetings just the way you would do it for anybody else. So, you know, you don't forget them and you shouldn't forget them in their home uh, because absolutely you're right. You still have the same obligations if they're your employee. Quite different if they are contractors. So it's a different setup. But um I I wouldn't want to um, claim to be a legal expert. Fair enough. 
I was talking to the CEO of Metail just yesterday, and he was telling me how they've got multi-site offices, and they've got one or two individuals working on their own in different geographies where they sell, and they've got an always-on Skype on a big screen so that anybody in any office, and it faces the kitchen, it doesn't face the office where you watch somebody working, you can see other people having a cup of coffee. And I thought that was a lovely idea, you know, just making people physical and feel connected regardless of where they're working because it's so so easy for people to be forgotten and I think the person asking the second question is feeling lonely because in a way they've they've been forgotten and probably their colleagues are are feeling exactly the same. Um, I'm very mindful of your time and and we're getting towards the end of, of, of our half an hour. Is there anything that you really kind of want to urge your fellow founders and entrepreneurs and advisors to start thinking about and do differently based on what you've learned? Any words of wisdom? I would say it's really important not to be quite scattergun in your management style. It's very tempting when you're starting off to feel quite relaxed about many things because especially if you're funded, you're very anxious about one thing, which is the funding. But a scattergun approach to people results in a lot of problems. It could go all the way to tribunal, but I think this idea of having some kind of sense of discipline to some degree without being inflexible, um, having a kind of sense of how are you structured and what are the main things and keep to them is really important. I have found uh, entrepreneurs that are trying to go and do everything and it doesn't really work. So find out about your strength and stick to it and bring other people that might bring other stuff to the table. I mean, I remember my recruitment style. Um, It wasn't going very well because I wasn't very good at recruiting people because entrepreneurs are crazy (laughs) enthusiastic about what they try to do. And so you end up kind of speaking rather than asking the right questions, you know? (laughs) I don't know what you mean. I have no idea. I've never suffered from that problem. (laughs) So I used to call my um, recruitment method before I got the whole team involved to do it better together than me by myself. I used to call it the voodoo recruitment method. It was just a kind of literally, please, everybody land. I'm desperate for help. And, uh, you know, also people gathered around me uh, of various degrees of competence. I didn't feel lonely anymore because it was busy, but busy wrong. (laughs) So it's very tempting because I think, you know, going back to the question about being lonely as an employee, (laughs) it's even lonelier as an entrepreneur. And it's very tempting to want to kind of drive with all the energy you have, surround yourself with lots of people, you know, it looks good because you say, I've got, you know, a team that's growing in numbers. Always turn, it always comes back to the core and really understanding what that core is and rallying people around it. I think to me, it's very important. So having discovered that my voodoo method was just a really lousy method, with time, I, I asked myself, what's important to me? What is it that I've set out to achieve and actually put it down in writing and I've ended up writing a bit of a an obelisk booklet for the central team about what what's important you know what's important in terms of how you treat people how you behave the things that are important to me that I thought I was communicating but I wasn't so that became our kind of new joiner book uh it's a booklet obviously and uh I found that 
experience of putting it in writing very clarifying for me in terms of what it is that is centered to the business and what actually can be evolved with the people around. But you always have a foundation to return to. And I think it's very tempted to be very, very broad and very all over the place. But, you know, I can only speak for myself. Focus has paid off. We've grown a lot. And uh, I don't care to be a sexy business owner. I want to have a sustainable business for the long term. And that is an extraordinarily refreshing message, Dana. And I think it's one of the things quite often we can get swept up in the I'm going to raise money and have this sexy business and then I'm going to have this great exit in three years or five years and I shall be this wonderful entrepreneur. But in the end, it's actually who are you? Why are you doing this? What does success look like? And how can that be sustainable for the future? And and I applaud you for, for making it work and thank you for sharing your insights with us because it's it's really, really interesting what you've done. Uh, so on that note, you've been listening to Vicky Brock and Dana Dennis-Smith, this week's Entrepreneur Agniance. As ever, you can submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast. 